Greetings everyone, and welcome back to the Rust Belt Roundup. Last episode, we explored the rise of Ohio and its history, and how it came to dominate the heartland of the U.S., and became the literal beating heart of industry within the nation. This episode, we will be taking a look at the fall of Ohio, the descent into rust and the decay of the industrial Midwest, through the lens of Ohio and specifically taking a look at Youngstown, Ohio, and the effects the rust had on it. Today is a special day because I had the pleasure of interviewing two professors. These two professors are experts on Ohio history, and they have graciously agreed to help me teach you, dear listener, yes, you, walking through the world with your headphones in and mind tuned to this frequency of history, about the fall of Ohio into rust. Before we begin, it seems only fitting to introduce these esteemed guests to the show. I'm joined by Dr. Kenneth Bindis of, of Kent State University and Dr. Donna de Blasio of Youngstown University. Dr. Bindis is an expert in the Depression era of America, oral history and memory studies, and Dr. de Blasio specializes in the social history of the 20th century America and the preservation of the history of Ohio, specifically the Youngstown area. With introductions out of the way, let's dive right in. My first question to you is, what do you think is the main reason behind Ohio becoming the heartland of the United States? Dr. de Blasio, why don't you go first? Well, we were really the, one of the major, the major area to settle following the revolution, particularly after uh, the adoption of the uh, of the uh, Northwest Ordinance uh, and the other land ordinances. That was th I always think of that one because that is the one that set up what we call the Old Northwest. And for a long time, that's what was the Old Northwest, those five states that came out of that early, that early uh, Republic period. And I think because we had a lot of, a lot going for us, really a lot of natural resources, Location, location, location. You have the Ohio River. You have, once you could hook up all the lakes, once the Erie Canal is done, you're hooked in with the other the Great Lakes. So the northern and southern parts of the state had that water transportation, which was so important. And uh, again, going back to that, the natural resources that were available here, a lot of land, good farming in a lot of places. So you got agriculture. You have, um, you know, the resources to make iron, iron to smelt iron. A stone quarrying in the Berea Drift. So there, there's just so much here that people could exploit. Um, and uh, I think that's, that's a, that helped Ohio truly become, quote unquote, the heart of it all for, for many, many years. And you, Dr. Bendis, what do you think is the reason behind Ohio becoming the heartland of the United States? Oh, interestingly, I was just reading uh, an essay published uh, back in the 1920s by Frederick Jackson Turner, who, you know, wrote the significance of the frontier in American history, but he was also very, uh, wrote a lot about regionalism. And he wrote about Ohio and the North Central region, as it was called, uh, during the period from around 1801 to 1850. And the thing I noticed most, and, you know, it's older, his, you know, older scholarship, but what I noticed most, he talked about Ohio being this wonderful place where, people move to and move through. We were sort of the opening of the Northwest Territory, right? So you have the 13 original colonies and, and then you had additional colonies of, of Kentucky and Tennessee come into the Union, you know, before Ohio. But Ohio served as sort of an opening up into the entire industrial Midwest. 
So you have Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, uh, you know, the rest of the entire North Central Midwest, all the way to St. Louis. And Ohio uh, was the most populous state as a result of this. And things like the Ohio Erie Canal, which was completed in 1835, which linked Cleveland all the way down to Portsmouth, Ohio, opened up Ohio's agriculture. This was before the railroads came in, which you talked about in your earlier podcast, were tremendously significant for Ohio and helped lead to this uh, becoming the heart of it all as well. But it was that Ohio Erie Canal that initially represented how you can open up Ohio farmlands because what Ohioans grew were wheat and corn and they used wheat uh, to ship it back, uh, you know, to be processed either up, uh, up to the Great Lakes and then over down the Erie Canal to New York City or they shipped it down the Ohio Erie Canal down to Portsmouth, Ohio and then from Portsmouth all the way down to New Orleans and then to world markets that way. So you had two ways to get your goods to market. And for corn, they used that primarily for what Ohio was known for, and that's porkopolis. We were, we were the state that had lots and lots of pork. I mean, Cincinnati was the pork capital of the United States, uh, you know, and it, all the way until the latter part of the 19th, 30th, 20th century, uh, their main source of sanitation was to allow pigs to roam the streets to, you know, to clean the streets up. Pigs will eat anything, uh, you know, and then... So uh, those are some of the reasons. Railroads, the Civil War, the Civil War played just such a significant role because not just because we sent more soldiers and had more leaders, but again, we were that place that militarily it was easy to get things inland via Ohio rather than trying to get them from Pennsylvania through Virginia or Maryland into the uh, into the heartland of the of the battles. So with Ohio, you can go right down the Ohio River and right down the Mississippi, which of course was a tactic that uh, that the Civil War generals utilized, not just for military but for service and supply as well. And then in the aftermath of the Civil War, what the Civil War did is it unleashed the industrial power of Ohio. Uh, we were blessed as a state with certain natural resources uh, like coal. Uh, like uh, ore minerals. Uh, we were blessed with the Great Lake that connected directly to the uh, ore, ore fields uh, in Minnesota. Uh, and so all of these factors contributed to the fact that Ohio was open for business in the latter part of the 19th century. And steel manufacture uh, was, was the primary, or iron ore as you present, and then iron and then steel later in the 19th century and early 20th century became predominant which naturally led to the rise of the automobile industry, which naturally led to, you know, it's that ripple effect. You have one industry, iron, and that leads to steel, and steel leads to automobile, and automobile leads to oil, and oil. Like Sherwin-Williams, you know, they're building a new building downtown in Cleveland, right, world headquarters. Uh, their politically incorrect, you know, slogan, we, we cover the world with paint, <laughs> which is probably not good, but that's a derivative yeah. Of the oil industry being located in Cleveland at the time, right? Because paint in this time period, uh, when Sherwin Williams started in the latter part of the 19th, early part of the 20th century, paint was oil based. When you think about paint, it, we don't think about paint because it's so ubiquitous, right? It's everywhere. Um, but it was something that uh, that came as part of the Industrial Revolution as well. Moving on to the next question, which is a inverse of the first question. So instead of what caused Ohio to become the heartland, the next question is, and we'll start with you, Dr. de Blasio, what, in your opinion, caused the decline of Ohio into the Rust Belt, out of the heartland and into the Rust? Well, um, 
That's a really good question. There are, I think, a lot, but um, probably in more recent memory and probably particularly relevant to the iron and steel industry, which, you know, of course, Northeast Ohio especially impacted Youngstown, the Honing Valley, Cleveland. I think the strike in 59 that went on for can almost, I can remember exactly how many weeks. I mean, it was like almost six months at that strike uh, in the steel industry. Uh, I want to say 1959, it may have been the first year that steel imports to the United States exceeded exports. I mean, since, you know, we became a major steel manufacturing nation in the early 20th century with the rise of U.S. steel. I mean, England, of course, was ahead of us for a long time. And then I think that's really important. And that whole trend towards smaller vehicles, cars, especially and lighter and smaller cars, and we were still building behemoths, that didn't help. Um, that I mean, for a while, I mean, of course, the, the General Motors plant in Lordstown line for a while, because they were producing smaller cars. At the time it was built was one of the most advanced auto plants. So they're kind of lagging a little bit behind. So steel is the one that's really impacted first. It was so important and not just steel, but all the steel fabricators too. I mean, it's, it's, it's everything that supports the steel industry. You know, you have, um, for example, people make refractory brick, like the Niles fire brick. Uh, they're making, you have to have that to line the furnaces. Well, you know, if that it's all, it's all going to devolve down. You have, you know, the William B. Pollock company made blast furnaces and ladle cars. Well, there's no demand for that. You know, you've got, you've got some major problems. And I, I really, I don't know if it's like, I don't know about a key moment per se, but they really did start to um, export jobs to other places. Um, that doesn't help. Um, you know, when GM's got a plant in Mexico, that's, that's working quite well. Um, there were, so it's, it's just such a complex story, but I think those are some key, key times, if you will, I said in the post-World War II period, Ohio's and at least the industrial base um, started to decline. Thank you, Dr. de Blasio. And same question to you, Dr. Bindus. What do you think were the main factors in your opinion that contributed to the fall of Ohio from the heartland into the Rust Belt? I think there are internal and external reasons. Internal reasons is that uh, primarily in the uh, industrial regions, whether it be Cincinnati, Columbus, Dayton, uh, Maslin, Akron, Cleveland, Youngstown, Warren, you know, that whole strip of industrial Ohio, there had come to be almost a complacency of industry within them. So like national cash register out of date, which, you know, every cash register in the world was a national cash register, you know, complacent in the business atmosphere, right? And your ability to adapt and change was limited over time because it was easy profits. There were no competition. There were, you know, the same with the steel industry or the oil industry or the automobile industry. You know, when you're General Motors, Ford or Chrysler in 1955, there's nobody competing with you right? Even in 1935 or in 1970, still you're, you're top of the field. You know, there's no competition. So the need to innovate wasn't always there. Steel industry, this was even more evident because, you know, particularly with World War II and then Korea and Vietnam, there was this constant demand for steel products by the U.S. military and by the federal government. And that combined with the demand for steel products in the automobile industry, because there was no competition, and that combined with the, you know, the uh, low cost of oil and gasoline in the marketplace, you know, it was like a, a, a perfect storm for profits if you're in the steel, automobile, or uh, oil industry. But when those things started to turn, there were no alternatives to offset that. 
So as the automobile industry found itself in competition with foreign companies, because they offered automobiles with greater gas mileage, which comes as a result of increasing gas prices as a result of the OPEC crisis in the early 1970s and the continued rise of gas prices in the 1970s. American automobiles were primarily made of steel. And so now the steel industry has found itself, the automobile industry didn't need as much steel to produce automobiles. The Vietnam War had come to an end and the military didn't need as much steel for tanks and guns and all the other things, automobile, you know, the uh, uh, the vehicles that they utilized, all those type of things. And so you have all these factors in the 1960s and 1970s all joining together to sort of reduce the need for the industrial Midwest. And Ohio was the center of the industrial Midwest. And we felt the biggest brunt of it. Um, you know, Cleveland and Cincinnati felt, and Columbus felt the least amount of it because there were other business and industrial interests in those areas, but places like Akron or Cleveland or Akron or Youngstown or Warren or Maslin or Dayton, which were one or two industry towns, uh, they were particularly hard hit because there was there were no other alternatives. There were no other alternatives. You still had the lake, you know, and so you had shipping. Uh, you still had agricultural shipping on the lake, you know. Youngstown didn't have that. Warren, uh, Maslin, Akron, you know, they were dependent on industry. And Toledo, Toledo, another big one, my goodness. So those are internal factors. The external factors are, is that the South emerged after the Civil War, after World War II rather, and using primarily anti-union tactics, uh, sort of competed and took jobs away from the industrial Midwest. So when a new tire factory wanted to open, rather than wanted to open in Akron or in Ohio with the strong uh, positioning of the uh, United Rubber Workers, right? They opened it in Alabama or Georgia or Mississippi, where there wasn't union. Uh, the same with automobile factories. You know, when Honda wanted or Hyundai wanted to open up a factory, they didn't want to open up in Ohio and test the UAW in the 1970s. Uh, they would move somewhere else, like uh, and, and do it that way. And so these external factors, uh, the rise of the South, and the South, you know, develops as a result of the New Deal. The New Deal helps the South modernize. The New Deal helps the South become a modern nation. And as a result of that, it becomes a competitor for the industrial Midwest. So you would say that the, the Sun Belt, you know, caused the Rust Belt in a way. And, you know, the development of air conditioning, you know, uh, which again, like paint is something we don't think about because it's everywhere, air conditioning. In the South, you're not going to have a lot of uh, industry or business move to the South until they develop cheap and efficient means of air conditioning buildings and factories and everything else. In an automobile factory, for example, you know, in terms of uh, in terms of heat, there's only a couple places in the automobile factory where it's, you know, the in the paint shop where they're, you know, the heating the car, heating the uh, the paint up. Uh, sometimes in the body shop where they're doing a lot of welding and there's a lot of sparks and a lot of heat. But the rest of the factory is, you know, putting small pieces in the car, and uh, that can't be done if there's not temperature control. And Ohio just didn't offer it the same level of advantages that other southern states or western states, southwestern states offer. For my next question, I want to narrow things down a little bit and focus in on Youngstown, an area that both of you are experts in, and ask the question, what part did Youngstown play in Ohio's rise? Dr. de Blasio, let's start with you. Oh, that's that's an easy one, actually. Um, I mean, going back to the early 19th century when the area, well, Youngstown was established in the 1790s, but uh, they, they found um, in 
three found deposits of local iron ore and um, limestone and a lot of trees uh, to make iron, to smelt iron. And uh, the Heaton brothers uh, opened an iron furnace on Yellow Creek and Struthers, which is east of Youngstown for people who don't know. And that was really the start of the iron industry in the area. Eventually, and, and now if anybody's wondering why you need trees is because it's, uh, you need charcoal, you need carbon that form the carbon eventually gets replaced by coal. And guess what we had too? We had tons we had, of coal. We had coal too. And, um, you know, that all ran out in the 19th century, but the, we had a fair, a mature, what we would say a mature iron industry, really producing armaments for the Civil War and things like that. You know, like I said, stuff runs out, but, you know, you get the, the iron, the iron was so necessary that, you know, no matter that they ran out of the, the raw materials, it could still manufacture. So uh, we were a little late on the steel wagon. Carnegie opens um, the Edgar Thompson works in, in the 18, early 1870s. We don't pour our first Bessemer process steel until um, 1895. The Ohio Steel Company is formed in 1893. And um, from there on, though, it was kind of like it just kept going. And, and this area became second only to Pittsburgh in the annual tonnage that was produced by the 1920s. We had made three major companies here by the 20s. I mean, there were a lot of smaller firms that got eventually got bought out by whoever, you know, like. Briar Hill still got bought out by the sheet and tube. And so they had their two plants. They had their flagship plant in Camel and they had the, the they acquired Briar Hill still in the twenties. Um, they also, that's also when they acquired the Indian, they had a plant in Indiana Harbor too, by Chicago. Yeah. You know, you're talking, these are major companies, U.S. Steel. Well, they, they, they're, the operative units here was Carnegie Steel, then Carnegie Illinois Steel. That way they had plants here. And then Republic had its headquarters. They moved it here in 07, 1907. And then, but in 1930, they moved it to Cleveland. Uh, so they went Pittsburgh, Youngstown, Cleveland. So uh, the thing is, you not only have the steel industry, but you have a lot of those support industries. The William B. Pollock Company, uh, like I said, they, they manufactured, they got started in the late 19th century and uh, they manufactured blast furnaces and ladle cars, some of the really big stuff that the steel industry needs. We had the Niles fire brick, producing the brick that you need there. And, uh, and a lot of engineering companies like, um, well, you have commercial shearing, you had um, you know, United Engineering and Foundry and all those, there were all these engineering firms that fabricated steel. So everything's about the steel. I mean, and that's, I mean, that contributes to the Valley's problems too, because it's basically- I was about to ask, it was one thing falls, everything starts to fall, domino effect. It's, it's literally, a, almost literally a domino effect. So that so that's why how Youngstown um, really prospered during you know the peak years are probably the twenties and then the Second World War of course because they you know they were at like ninety some percent capacity at war during World War Two and then everything and then you know you had part of the post war boom you know and now you're building houses and you know people you know, they're buying lots of cars and the cars are bigger and better and you know you need steel to make those cars and people are building big buildings we we did a lot of pipe here so went into a lot of big buildings and con for conduit and things like that and you know pipe underground and all that stuff. Thank you, Dr. de Blasio. And Dr. Bendis, in your opinion, how did Youngstown contribute to Ohio becoming the heartland of the United States? Um, Youngstown uh, was was significant in it. I mean, by the time of World War II, Youngstown was known as the, the Ruhr Valley of, of America, you know, the, the valley in, in Germany and France that was the heart of industrialized Europe, you know, that the French and the Germans battled over in World War I. 
World War II and even the French and German War of the late 19th century. Youngstown was significant uh, in that way. Pittsburgh uh, was, you know, sort of the headquarters of steel because that's where Carnegie Steel and then U.S. Steel had its headquarters. But given the location of the ore shipping industry uh, in Cleveland and in Astabula, Youngstown, directly from Astabula, right down what is today Route 11, but the rail lines uh, as well, right down there. Youngstown was a direct line, and Warren were direct lines to these uh, shipping industries on Lake Erie. And railroads shipped the steel throughout the United States. So it was centrally located. The laborers that were brought in uh, were of immigrant background. This was in the uh, early part of the 20th century before unionization. They worked long, they worked relatively cheap and Youngstown emerged as a steel making center and local local natural resources aided that. The availability of Coke, the, you know, Warren was the Coke capital of the world. Uh, not cocaine, but high-density uh, coal uh, that's used in, in production of steel. You know, they were the leaders in the production of coke in the world, uh, the coke houses in, in Warren. You know, and that's right next to Youngstown, which had, along the Mahoning River, uh, this whole stable of different Youngstown sheet and tube, U.S. Steel, Republic Steel, Weirton Steel, you know, uh, as well as smaller steel companies all up and down the Mahoning River, uh, moving all the way into Warren. Uh, you know, so you had this, you know, this sort of industrial, you know, if you want to look at uh, uh, the San Francisco area as being this, uh, you know, and its identity uh, with, uh, with the internet and, and those type of things, uh, Silicon Valley type things. Well, Youngstown was Steel Valley. That's what it was called. Uh, and in a different time period, that made it the Silicon Valley of its time period, because that's where, you know, the steel was being made, was in the Steel Valley, stretching from, you know, from Struthers, all the way through over to Warren along the Mahoning River. And that, that was good. But beginning in World War II, uh, you begin to see the decline. You begin to slow down as other steel manufacturers, particularly in the 1950s, German steel manufacturer, Japanese steel manufacturer, you know, they start competing with American, uh, with American manufacturer of steel. And the steel industry, like any industry, begins to uh, contract itself, right? Begins to, you know, redirect resources to different places. And for whatever reason, Youngstown was not on the, was not on the front of the list for getting some of those resources for upgrades, you know, changing right. furnaces to be less required on 19th and early 20th century practices and more with electric ovens or with gas infused ovens, you know, different type of ovens that the Germans and the Japanese were utilizing because their industries had to be rebuilt from the ground up. So they were rebuilding with brand new technology. Whereas the, you know, the furnaces in Youngstown, while they were still, you know, efficient in that they produced steel and there was still profit to be made, the degree of their profit based off of the investment was not as, was not as high as some of these new steel mills that were being, steel furnaces that were being produced as well. So even in the midst of its rise, you begin to see the decline. Thank you, Dr. Bendis. Jumping back over to you, Dr. de Blasio, and asking the inverse question, in what ways did the fall of Youngstown contribute to the fall of Ohio? It's kind of a starting point, or at least a visible starting point. Let's put it that way. I mean, you can go back and look at, in Pennsylvania, and the, the anthracite coal industry. Um, anthracite coal is the hard coal, and it, it, it has fewer impurities than bituminous, and that's what's literally fueled the steel industry, but you had to turn it into coat coal first. You had to, had to burn the impurities out. Well, 
that started petering out in the 1950s, you know, um, and uh, so that that was in a decline. But you know, that's that almost seems isolated, but in a way, it's not. But I think in the post in this period in the post 1970s, Youngstown kind of did become a bellwether. I would say for not just Ohio, because places, some cities like Cincinnati, those they aren't one industry towns. I mean, they had. I mean, P and G is a big big player there, but they had a whole, I have a whole bunch of other things going for it, plus the location and uh, on the river and everything. Uh, Cleveland got hit because they also have a steel industry, but they also have an auto industry and that kind of, that forestalled it a bit, uh, but you know, it, it was like, I mean, I, it was I an guess inevitability. It was kind of that, but you know, you also had all of that prop inner city problems too, urban decline and yeah. people, the white flight that happened in the sixties with the suburbs and all that, that doesn't help matters, but that he can, once you lose that economic base, you're losing a tax base too. And, and that doesn't help with problem. infrastructure at all. Absolutely. And that's, you know, I mean, Cleveland has made a comeback, but you know, they've done a really remarkable job and, but they still have, you know, problems, areas like every, every urban area. And, and I mean, you know, we don't want to talk about rural poverty too, but you know, anytime these industries start failing, you're losing not only a local tax base, but we also have state taxes that are paid and federal taxes, you know, in terms of income. So they're, you're losing that too, but you're, you're, you know, you're losing, your schools are getting shortchanged because there's no money. Which and is not helping, and it it's yeah. cascades downward. Um, well, thank you, Dr. De Blasio. Um, Dr. Bendis, same question to you. In what ways did Youngstown's fall contribute to the greater fall of Ohio? I think it was significant um, because uh, it was sort of, not sort of, it was the canary in the coal mine for the rest of the state. You know, the beginning of the demise of Youngstown really is in the 1960s. Uh, and they begin to recognize the limitation of their investment, the U.S. Steel, Youngstown Sheet and Tube, Steel Door, you know, Republic Steel. They begin to see the limitations of profit in the region um, and begin reducing their investment. And that, that caused a ripple effect in railroads. That caused a ripple effect in Ashtabula. That caused a ripple effect in Cleveland. It, uh, you know, it affected the automobile and the gas industry. It, it affected the service industries of restaurants, grocery stores, banks, post office. You know, when one aspect of the economy begins to contract, other aspects of the economy begin to contract with it. These problems were, you know, were tied very closely to other urban-based problems that became really identified in the 1960s in places like Youngstown or Cleveland was another uh, good example, or Akron or Columbus or Cincinnati. And then if you look outside the state, places like New York City were also undergoing this transition. New York City, interestingly enough, uh, previous to the 1970s, overwhelmingly the people who lived in New York City were workers, working class people. I mean, we think of New York City nowadays, and it would be impossible for a working class person to live in New York City. But in the, <laughs> yeah. the 1960s, end of the 1960s, most people who lived in New York City were employed in what we would consider working class jobs. Construction jobs uh, was a big one in New York City as well. And that all kind of shifts. And that tendency is also happening in places like Cleveland, Youngstown, where, you know, uh, the investment in downtown and in, in the city itself has begun to shrunk, shrink rather. And you have people moving to the suburbs, white people moving to the suburbs, and the city core beginning to crumble. 
And, you know, and as that begins to happen, then you see, you know, other people recognizing that they, if they're going to invest money in something, they're going to invest it somewhere else. Right. In a growing city like Houston uh, or Dallas or Atlanta, uh, they're going to move their money. When they move their money, that begins to affect industrial development as well, because industry grows and thrives by recruiting the best people to come to its industry by saying, oh, you'll want to come to Youngstown. Our school systems are the best. Our transportation is really good, et cetera, et cetera. But when you have that sucking drain of investment, it's hard to convince people then to say, well, I want to move. I'm going to move our factory headquarters into Youngstown. Well, why you move your factory into Youngstown if they're not going to have those supporting? That's right. Yeah. Uh, You know, you're not going to be able to recruit top executives. You're not going to be able, you know, it's in a way the same thing with the, uh, the Cleveland Cleveland sports teams, you know, how do you recruit great free agents to come to Cleveland? You know, they'd rather go to New York or LA or Miami, right? LeBron, thank you. Uh, you see what I mean? I mean, it's it's not that different of the story for the steel industry or for the railroad industry or for the automobile industry uh, or rubber industry. You know, I mean, Akron still has world headquarters and, and those other things, but they don't produce tires anymore in Akron. They haven't for a long time. Thank you, Dr. Bendis. So far in this podcast, we have talked a lot about a kind of depressing topic, about the decline, about the fall into rust. And a little bit in the beginning, we talked about some nice kind of happier stuff about Ohio rising to the top and what made it great. But all of that had this foreshadowing, this foreboding that eventually... Ohio would fall, this specter of the Rust Belt hanging over Ohio. So, I would like to ask you both now, in what ways has Ohio made a comeback? In what ways has Ohio crawled out of the rust and started to return to its former glory, in a way? Dr. de Blasio, let's start with you. Well, I I think um, there are plans, some were successful and some not so successful, particularly in urban areas. And I I mean, like I said, and I don't, I I don't really feel like I can speak about rural poverty and and rural issues because there are a lot of those as well. I mean, because it's going to devolve somewhere. But it's certainly in terms of urban areas, you know, there, there, um, there's, there was a lot of revitalization going on. I mean, Cleveland did its, you know, did its waterfront um, that I think that helped when they did the flats, although that seems to have gone the other way, but like the West Ninth street area is pretty cool. Plus all the new sports facilities uh, didn't hurt. Uh, and a winning team didn't hurt at least in one sport <laughs> or two sports. Let me take that back. You forgot about basketball. Uh, I don't, I, I'm not a basketball person. I, I just do baseball and football, but yeah. So, um, you know, they've done that. Well, Cincinnati and Columbus, see, Columbus really didn't have that big of a problem, I don't think, because they're the state capital. So there's always going to be lots of people there. But, you know, they, they've done stuff too. Like they, they tried, they revitalized their, their old movie theaters, their, their little they have a couple of um, movie palaces that they got going again. And uh, they did try that city center thing, but boy, that, that kind of that <laughs> didn't work, under, but that happened everywhere. I mean, that's not unusual. I mean, to those city center mall type things, you know, they were great back in the seventies and eighties. And then by the nineties, they started, and certainly by the beginning of the 21st century, I suppose e-tail doesn't help that because all malls are now all kinds of malls are, are in dire straits. But uh, I think, you know, Youngstown certainly is made, I'm kind of impressed, uh, actually, in the last, 
probably 10 years or so, we've gotten a whole bunch of new restaurants downtown successfully. I mean, <laughs> and nice restaurants. They re, um, they took an over, uh, the uh, Hilton um, opened a double tree in a uh, 1907 slash 1920 something. Maybe it wasn't 20s. They added four floors to the building. 1907 uh, building that that actually sheet and tube company headquarters was in that building, the Stampa building, turned it into a hotel. There's a really nice restaurant in there, banquet facilities. It's just lovely. And I think they're doing pretty well. I mean, from what I can tell, the times I've been back. Um, so, you know, there were concentrated efforts in a lot of these areas and, and some of them have been successful. They, they also put in a a new downtown outdoor uh, facility. Warren did the same thing a number of years ago. They put their amphitheater in and that was, that's really nice. Warren, Warren's downtown is quite nice. You know, they've done a lot of work there too. So, I mean, the, the city leaders really, they have made efforts and I think some successfully. Um, and I think that's all, that's all been good. And finally to you, Dr. Bendis, in what ways has Ohio crawled its way out of the rust? I think it's generational. I mean, one of the things that happens uh, when the economy starts to tumble uh, is that the people living in those places uh, internalize that sense of failure, uh, almost like they uh, like they're accepting the blame for it. Like somehow it's their fault that uh, that you know places in Ohio became rust belt. That Cleveland became the butt of the joke, uh, butt of jokes, you know, the mistake on the lake that, you know, Cincinnati is whatever label Southern Ohio puts upon it. And you know what I mean? The population sort of internalizes that, you know, you start to believe it. And I think that really, uh, really was problematic for many Ohioans. I think for most Ohioans, I think uh, in the latter part of the 20th century, I think most Ohioans almost believed that somehow they lived in a backward antiquated state, that whatever good they saw as being Ohioans in the past was, was an illusion. And that, they, that somehow they were responsible and they almost deserved this, uh, this label of being an Ohioan, right? You know, so out to California and someone says, oh, where are you from? And you say, oh, I'm from Ohio. And, you know, they give you that snicker. Uh, you know, and he's like, oh, yeah, you're right. I am from Ohio and I should feel ashamed from being Ohio, as opposed to someone in the 1920s from Ohio. You know, uh, in 1922, Ohioans ran for president, for goodness sakes. Uh, you know, you say there was an entire like run of presidents exactly. that were that were all from Ohio. And what a shift. Two generations later, it's like, you know, we're almost embarrassed to say we're from Ohio. I think that comes as a result of the demise of of American industry, not just Ohio, um, but Ohio for whatever reason becomes the magnet for all of the angst that the United States feels in the period from around 1968 until you know maybe the 1990s when new industry, the computer industry and, and the internet sort of re-energizes American identity. Uh, but Ohio sort of seems like it's the, uh, the magnet for all of this angst. Uh, you know, and, and responsible for the Rust Belt. I don't think Indianaians, right, if that's what they're called, uh, Hoosier folk, Hoosier uh, folk. <laughs> uh, you know, or people from Illinois or people from Michigan even consider themselves so much Rust Beltian, as do Ohioans. I think Ohioans wear that belt 
uh, a lot stronger or had worn it a lot stronger than any other region. I mean, certainly areas of Pittsburgh and, and Western Pennsylvania saw themselves as Rust Belt, but Pennsylvania as a whole didn't see itself as Rust Belt, right? Uh, Indiana, maybe a little bit of Indianapolis was Rust Beltian, and certainly up around the lake by Gary, Indiana, was Rust Beltian. But again, um, the rest of the state didn't see itself. But in Ohio, uh, you know, it was hard not to go somewhere, you know, and not see Rust Belt. You know, so you could drive up and down Route 11 all the way down to Southern Ohio and all the way up to Astabula, and you would just drive by, you know, just example after example of Rust Belt. You can drive down 71 going from Cleveland straight down through Columbus to Cincinnati and be witness to the Rust Belt all the way through. Same thing with 77 South from uh, Toledo all the way down to Cincinnati, you know, no matter where you went. Yeah. I mean, I just the other day I was driving for Thanksgiving and as we were driving around, we hit, I think it was a Kenton, Ohio. Yeah. And I was driving right through it. I'm like, there's a factory. There was a, or should I say, there was a factory there. There was a factory there. There was a factory there. Like I could see the rows of just empty workshops and warehouses and factory lines. I could see the smokestacks that just yeah. where it had been gone cold. Nothing there, but you could drive through Indiana and drive you know, 300 miles and not see any evidence that something had declined because you see just cornfields. Same with Illinois. I mean, up up, up north uh, by Chicago, of course, certainly, and in Wisconsin, up around the lake there by Milwaukee. But, you know, and a little bit in southern Illinois, but the rest of the state, you know, it's, does, it sees itself as Midwestern, not Rust Belt. So they'll uh, sort, of, um, sort of internalize the Rust Belt more than any other Midwestern state. Uh, and it became our identity and it became... It has two sides to it, in my opinion. And one side of it, it sort of represents our uh, our depravity, uh, it, for want of a better word. It represents our failure, better word than depravity, right? It represents our failure. On the other side, on the other side uh, it represents our toughness. Because, you know, when you tell somebody you're from Cleveland or from Youngstown or from Akron, uh, or other Columbus or Cincinnati, there's a certain amount of pride that you've been able to <laughs> survive as a result of that, because these are hard scrabble tough places. So it revealed a level of toughness. And I think as time went on, as we entered the 21st century, that toughness has become sort of uh, iconic for Ohioans. That, yeah, we may have been the Rust Belt, but we're, we're building our way out of it, right? We're right. working together to build our way out of it. We're not relying on some... Uh, some silver bullet to save us. We're going to work hard. Uh, we're working class people. You hear this all the time when they talk about our sports teams, whether it's in Cincinnati or Columbus for the hockey team or Cleveland. You know, these are working. These are uh, good uh, working class people who work hard for your living and blah blah blah. You know, and I think that's the identity we've developed in the 21st century. Wrapping things up with a question that will lead into the next episode. What industries or areas were able to avoid the Rust Belt and were never actually touched by it, that survived and weathered the storm? Dr. de Blasio, you first. Well, I think um, uh, Cincinnati. I worked, I, uh, I worked there for a year at Museum Center and they, they um, and that was back in the late, that was in 90, uh, 98, 99. And um, I don't think they ever felt it like the rest of, the, you know, the more heavily industrial areas. Again, I think because, you know, the, I mean, they're dealing with light industry like PP, like, uh, like uh, P&G, 
but they have, there's just a lot going for it there. They, they, they seem to be able to seem to have weathered that storm. In fact, if I'm, it's my understanding too, that even during the 1930s, everybody was in a mess, but they were in less of a mess than, than other areas. And Columbus is the same thing. But I think in Columbus's case, the built-in thing is you've got the state government there and all the government offices that go with it. And, and state agencies and, and statewide agencies or NGOs. And um, I mean, the Ohio History Connection is centered there. You have Ohio State University. I mean, that's, you know, you'll never go broke with Ohio State University there. And the, that's true. And, you know what I mean? You've got essentially a, a, a football team that is like a pro team. You know what yeah. I mean? Plus other, other, and they, they've added other pro sports with the soccer and the, and the hockey, ice hockey and everything. I, I mean, I would say a city like Columbus is almost recession, almost recession proof in the sense of because you have the government there. I mean, that's, that's going to be a stabilizing influence in terms of jobs and, and tax base. And what also what Columbus did many moons ago, they, they basically annexed other of these small little communities around there, they're actually part of the city of Columbus. So the, the, some of these suburbs, they bear their names, you know, but they're not necessarily individual governments that they're really part of Columbus, which Cleveland never did. Youngstown never did. So I, I have a feeling that helped to a degree too, in terms of, um, was, you know, what, like you said, that flight to the, the suburbs that a lot of the population did, if you annex the suburbs into the city, that it negates that flight. Yeah, which was, you know, really, that was a smart move. God only knows how many years ago they did that. But I was always told that. I, I mean, I can't swear to that, but I, I do. I'm pretty sure that is true. I, I think that, you know, those areas, some those two big cities really managed to make it through. Um, you know, then I, yes, they have their issues. Yes, you still have white flight. I mean, yeah. I, I probably shouldn't use that term, but <laughs> you have. It's the not inaccurate. Issues. It isn't in, you know, and I, I just, I'm not going to apologize for it because it's, there's a reason it's called that. Yeah. It's not to make somebody feel bad about themselves. It happened, you know. It's, it's a um, historical fact. It's a thing that happened. And thing that happened. And, um, and we, you know, for various reasons, but there was certainly the racism part of that was, was yes. a major part of it. Thank you, Dr. de Blasio. Dr. Bendis, the last word goes to you. What industries and regions were able to survive and even thrive during the Rust Belt? Yeah, uh, bars. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, if you look at who benefits from, uh, from uh, the decline of industry, it's, it's going to be bars and divorce lawyers. I think one of the things, one of the areas that grew as a result of the, of, of the Rust Belt was, was our, our commitment to medical technology. Uh, you could go from Cincinnati uh, all the way up 71 to Cleveland, and the medical health industry has really defined Ohio. I mean, if, if we're looking at Ohio, uh, other than agriculture, what signifies Ohio as an industrial leader, it would have to be the medical industry uh, from Cincinnati, Columbus, uh, Akron, uh, and, and Cleveland. The Cleveland Clinic University Hospitals, uh, Cincinnati University of Cincinnati Hospital System, uh, Rainbow Hospital down there. I mean, uh, the Columbus as well. I mean, that's really the industry that has evolved out of the Rust Belt that puts us on the cusp of a new industrial identity. We're not. We're no longer going to be heavily involved in manufacture of you know steel or iron ore or even automobiles for that matter. Right. 
but medical technology and the things that go along with medical technology, um, I think that has been, and, and breweries, apparently Ohio has 100 different small breweries, uh, you know, uh, in it. And so maybe that's another one, but again, alcohol. Uh, but I think hospital technology and hospitals uh, have really, have really defined uh, the 21st century program. Thank you, Dr. Bendis, and thank you, Dr. de Blasio, for joining me today to discuss the Rust Belt history of Ohio, the highs and lows of the era, and how Ohio has slowly begun to make a comeback. Next episode, we will be discussing modern Ohio, its future, and how it continues, even rusted and cold, to help define the United States. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a splendid day. See you next time.